Welcome to Boston Basic Income. I'm Alex Howlett. This is the final episode of 2020. This week's topic is cultural incentives, and we have two featured guests joining us to discuss, Erez Ueli and Bethany Burem. Erez is an economist, and Bethany is a social psychologist, and they work together to try to understand the roots of human social behavior. A lot of times we talk about the extent to which the economy needs labor to produce output, but does it become a problem if the economy needs less labor? Is it a problem if basic income leaves some people jobless? How adaptable are psychology and culture to these kinds of changes? To what extent do people need to work jobs in order to live meaningful and fulfilling lives? Is it a coincidence that people happen to have a need to do the very thing that society expects of them? So these are kind of the framing questions for our discussion. Some of us read an article from April of 2020 from The Guardian by Lauren Aranati entitled Experts Warn of Mental Health Fallout from Mass U.S. Unemployment. I want to start by going to Bethany and then Eras to get initial thoughts. Go ahead, Bethany. As Alex was alluding to just now, we think of work as something that fulfills many roles currently in our lives, not just giving us all of the means of survival, but also some kind of psychological or purpose-oriented role where we need work. Some people think in order to have a fulfilling life where we have a sense of purpose, we need it to have a sense of status in society, we need it purportedly to demonstrate our good character to people. So for example, this quote, hard work spotlights the character of people. Some turn up their sleeves and some turn up their noses and some don't turn up at all, right? So presumably it's better to be the first one one. Orrin Cass, somebody that Alex actually knew as a sort of random side note in high school, wrote this book called The Once and Future Worker, which is all about how important work is to people. And in both of these cases, I don't know for sure about the quote, but in his case, he's talking about paid labor, not just anything that you could do that might be productive. So that's going to be what I'm focused on when I talk about this too. And as Alex mentioned, there was this optional article talking about how not only are people losing their source of income when they lose their job, for example, during the coronavirus, but they're also potentially going to suffer mental health effects. And the implication in this article is that that's above and beyond the loss of income. It's a little unclear whether they demonstrate that or not in the article, but it's implied, I think, that people are going to lose something beyond the income, that even if you just replace the income with stimulus or something like that, that's not enough. And this is a quote from the article, it says, it may seem cliche, but work is not all about the money. And research proves it. <laughs> people want to work. They want to do meaningful things. And again, here, they're talking about paid labor. So it's a little bit fuzzy what their argument here is with meaningful things, but they're implying that paid work is necessary to sort of feel like you're doing something meaningful, this professor says. But you know, one thing that I do in my work and Ares does in his work is we try to look across different kinds of time periods, different kinds of situations to see if the things that we take for granted actually apply all the time. And as a humorous example, I'll show you a clip that suggests that this view on work is not universal. In other time periods when the economy worked differently, people felt differently about work. So this clip is courtesy of our co-worker Moshe, who's a fan of Downton Abbey. What will you do with your time? I've got a job in Ripon. I said I'll start tomorrow. A job? <laughs> you do know I mean to involve you in the running of the estate. Oh, don't worry. There are plenty of hours in the day. And of course I'll have the weekend. What, what is a weekend? So the character at the end there is particularly famous for throwing shade. She probably knows what a weekend is, but she's indicating that it's not maybe such a great thing for somebody in, at their level to have a job. 
right? So what's the difference between how we think of work right now in our culture and in Downton Abbey? Well, I think one obvious difference is that we require a job, as Alex was talking about earlier, to get just about everything for well-being in life. We need it just to basically eat, to have shelter, to have health care for the most part, not to mention anything more luxurious than that, like being able to take a vacation or go to a movie. And then with resources comes access to friends, comes access to people to date because people don't want usually to date someone who's destitute on the streets as much as they want to date someone with more resources, same for friends and everything else. So it's hard to overstate the importance of having a job to most people's well-being in our economy. And yet in Downtown Abbey, they do other kinds of work, but they don't do paid labor because they're at a sort of a level in society where the people in that society who do paid labor are actually less well off. They have fewer resources than the people who don't. And lo and behold, the attitude towards paid labor is different. And we've seen this beyond Downtown Abbey. We see it in other time periods and in other, I don't know if there are any other places right now, but certainly for women in earlier periods of time as well, even when men were starting to work more universally, it was seen as okay for women to do work that wasn't a paid job. And then that has changed to some degree gradually over time as well. So these attitudes shift. And the overall thesis that I think both Eris and I are going to talk about today is that our morality, our ideologies, our sense of preferences, including what we enjoy, what gives us a sense of purpose, all these things respond to incentives. And to some degree, that means that they can change when incentives change. This can help us make sense of how attitudes are different in different times and places. So why is any of this relevant to us in a basic income discussion? Well, as I alluded to with that once in future worker book, some people who are concerned about basic income are concerned about the fact that people actually need, they would argue, something like a paid job to have a good quality of life. I think implicit in that idea is this idea that there's a fixed human desire to perform paid labor, that this is something that isn't really going to change. People need this. And so our economy needs to accommodate this. If you hold this view, even if you are a fan of basic income, you're going to have to figure out some way to help people be able to perform paid labor so that they can have a good quality of life. Or if you don't, that'll be some kind of sacrifice. But this alternative view that Ares and I have is that maybe it's not so much that we have this fixed human desire to do paid labor. Maybe we desire doing paid labor because we need to do that in our current economy to have any kind of well-being, most of us, unless we're born you know, really wealthy. And lo and behold, somebody born into inherited wealth may not feel this desire, or they might because they're in our culture, but I'll get to that later. Valuing and enjoying paid work in our economy, it motivates us to do what we need to get resources. And then there's a secondary thing, which is if you go into your place of work where you're getting these resources and you convey that you really think a work ethic is important and you love working and it's, you know, it's your raison d'etre is to work, you're probably going to seem to be somebody who's going to work harder for the company and get promoted. Whereas if you go in and say, man, what I really get meaning and purpose from is being with my family or other things, like I have to do this job to get money, obviously, but I don't really want to be here. That's not going to help your career prospects as much. So there's also a reason to internalize these beliefs from the perspective of signaling to others that you're going to do what they want you to do. And in exchange, you'll get more resources. This is really important to understand because if our economy were to change substantially, not just with the basic income, but if along with that, you had a reduction in the amount of work people had to do, paid labor people had to do for resources, you might see some shift in this proportional to what's changing in the economy, shift in what people actually feel that they want to do and enjoy doing and need to do for meaning and purpose and all of that. So that's my guess. And that's what I will talk about today. There are many other ways that cultural incentives intersect with basic income, but just a few that we can talk about. Cultural incentives are also a kind of motivation. Paid labor gives you money to motivate you to do things, but there are other ways that people are motivated to do things. People are often altruistic or give resources away. And one of the kinds of motivations for that, or some of the kinds of motivations for that might be reputational benefits that they get from other people. So there are these cultural incentives to contribute to society that can supplement or substitute for monetary payment. And this might be relevant when we think about basic income, because one thing we often talk about is how the optimal level of basic income might depend on how much motivation people have to provide 
provide benefits without being paid to do the work. And so if people are happy to do everything we need for them in society without any payment, that would be unlikely. But if they're all the way on that extreme, then the basic income we can give people is higher because we don't need that extra incentive of paid labor. And if people really don't want to do anything useful uh, without getting paid, it's going to be a different kind of level of basic income that we might be able to afford. So we can talk about that. And then what will people do for meaning and purpose outside of paid labor? Some of that's going to be related to these cultural incentives too. People might not show off as much with a paid job to other people, but maybe they'll show off with an unpaid skill that they develop the way that people even now might become incredibly good at skateboarding or whatever and get some social cachet for that. So we can talk about these kinds of things as well. And the last sort of food for thought that I'll throw out there for people if they want to get into it is I've talked about people changing with changing circumstances, but of course people don't change immediately. There's going to be some stickiness because these are things that people have internalized and that stickiness could be a generation. It could be a year. <laughs> it could be different for different people. It could be multiple generations. So I think this is an interesting open question. And obviously we need to adapt to the pace at which people's preference for say paid labor might shift. That could be something interesting to talk about as well. So just some different questions to throw out there, but hopefully the key thesis is clear and I'll keep hammering it home, I'm sure throughout the discussion. So thanks so much, Alex. I'm excited to get into it. Okay. Thanks, Bethany. Go ahead, Erez. I don't feel like I have to go anymore. I think we're all set. Okay. I came prepared to discuss a little bit of evidence in support of Bethany's argument that I collected mostly out of a single source, which is a book by a uh, anthropologist at Harvard named Joe Henrik, who wrote a book called The Weirdest People in the World. And it's fabulous and everybody should totally check it out if you're looking for some wintertime reading. So I'll summarize that. Before I do, I want to speak to two points that Bethany raised. If you're a fan of the show, The Marvelous Miss Maisel, there's a great illustration of the fact that work was initially seen as kind of something that wasn't so desirable amongst women. What's the main character's name? Marge? I haven't seen it, but I've heard it's good. She's great. But uh, when she gets a job for the first time, this is the late 50s, her mother is just horrified. The first thing she thinks is, oh my God, what will this say about us as a family? So her mother is definitely somebody who looks a bit like the mother in Downton Abbey and thinks of work as something that's beneath a woman. And then the other thing that I wanted to highlight was that this question of pace is one that Henrik's book speaks a lot to. So maybe I'll transition to talking about that and I'll come back to this question about pace. Henrik writes this book, it's called The Weirdest People. The whole premise of the book is that the Catholic Church has some unique set of policies starting in the third century, but really accelerating in the ninth century AD that restructured society in a really unique way that we hadn't seen in other cultures before. In particular, what the church did was it broke up the clans. The church viewed itself as having as its primary competition were clan-based structures. And these are probably the most common way that you see societies get organized. There's a kinship group, people who are related to each other kind of work together. And those clans that as they grow and they grow more powerful, they can either take over other clans that are adjacent or they can grow wealthier through trade and expand their network through trade. If you've ever looked at late medieval, early Renaissance banking, it was these families who would work as a clan together all over the Mediterranean so that they could trust each other enough to loan each other money and actually expect to get paid back. You see the same kind of thing amongst clans in East Asia, where the merchant class is dominated by one or two clans all over Southeast Asia, even basically till modern times. The traditional structure of society is structured around these clans. And then Henrik finds that there's this new structure that arises because the church basically wants to bust up the clans and take the resources that the clans are hoarding for themselves for itself. That's the background that you need. As a consequence of this, you basically get a society that where the family structure shrinks a lot. 
the church does this through a variety of laws, including banning cousin marriage and things like that. You know, in most societies, it's perfectly fine to marry your cousin, but the church makes it so that we think that that's gross. That happens. And then you get the society starting in around maybe the 11th century, 12th century, when we get to the high middle ages in Europe, it's starting to look really different from a society that you saw before. The urbanization rates start to climb astronomically, whereas urbanization rates in other parts of the world are pretty flat because people are more mobile. They're not stuck to their clan. They converge on cities. By the 1350s, most cities in Europe have 50% more population than they did at the height of the Roman Empire. So they're doing really, really well. In addition to that, you have this individualism that starts to grow and so on. That's the background. When it comes to basic income, there's two key pieces of evidence that he's assembled related to people's satisfaction with regards to work, the degree to which people's personal identity and the things that they think are right or wrong are actually driven by work. He actually opens the book with some evidence where he says, if you ask somebody to describe themselves, what will they tell you? In most societies, they'll tell you, hi, my name is Erez. I'm the son of Amir, the father of Muki and Pumpkin. In our society, you ask somebody, hi, who are you? And they'll you know, say, I'm a researcher at MIT, or something like that. Most people in our society will identify to some extent, at least, with their profession. But if you look at across societies, that's not the case at all. Most people think about the relationships that they have as being foremost. And he talks about some other things that people associate. So they'll ask people about the way that they perceive themselves, and it differs in other dimensions as well. But for our purposes, the key one that's really interesting is the fact that they even respond with regards to work versus not. So some people view that as a key piece of their identity, some don't. That's one piece of evidence he provides. A second piece of evidence that he provides relates to even starting around 1100, but by 1300s, and certainly by the time that Reformation happens, there's this movement for work to be associated with godliness. Work becomes virtuous. Hard work becomes associated with God. And the Protestants are the ones who really take this to the next level. In Protestant culture, most people sort of view themselves as having a calling that's God's calling for them. And that calling is typically a profession. If you are a good, virtuous person, that's associated with the fact that you work hard at your calling, i.e. your job, which is something you will not find. Even Catholics, it was the Catholic Church that kind of started this process, but the Catholics don't really have that same strong association. But in Protestant uh, societies, you do. Henrik proceeds to show that people are sort of voluntarily working very hard. He documents like a thousand hour increase in the number of hours people work over the course of a couple hundred years from about, I think, 1300 to 1900. So maybe more than a couple hundred. But over the course of several hundred years, people start taking fewer days off. They work longer hours. And by the height of the first industrial revolution, you're seeing some really long hours being worked. And then you're also seeing it as being associated with the language that I referred to earlier as being associated with God. And there's one additional piece of evidence that he refers to, which is the fact that people view time as money. That's a unique thing to the West. He talks about the introduction of clock towers and how Europe's market towns all built clock towers. That was something nobody else did. Organizing your day around time and thinking of time as a resource that was finite was something that was unique to these places. And he says it's unique even today. The idea that you sort of view it as I could be working right now and that's a valuable thing that I could be doing instead of this thing. That's not something that everybody has in the world. He tells the story about giving watches to his research assistants in Fiji and realizing that they never set the time, but they like to wear them because they look cool. So that's that. And then just to come back to this question of pace that Bethany raised, one thing that is worth noting is that the pace of these innovations is over the course of about a millennium. He kind of starts the story at about 900 AD. 
a little bit of an oversimplification. It kind of starts earlier, but let's say about 980, and then it continues till today. And you see the role of work becoming more and more central. It's really in the high Middle Ages where work starts to take on this central role in people's identity. And even going from there where work becomes, you know, associated with God and these work hours go up so much. So from about 900 to about 1900, you're really seeing these gradual increases in the importance of work in people's psyche. That's really interesting. I wanted to ask you if you could highlight a little bit more the role of incentives and kind of like, how did the Catholic Church maybe change incentives? Other than breaking up the clan structure, how did people become incentivized to hold these beliefs about work and to work these really long hours and have the sense of opportunity cost, that kind of thing? I think that he doesn't do a great job of figuring that out. And I think that that's an open question to some extent in my mind. But basically, he says it kind of falls out from breaking up the clan structure, because what you're left with is now you're an individual, where as before, your identity is within this network. Uh, like, who are you within this network and what clan do you belong to? Your identity now is, my name is Erez. Well, Erez, are you going to steal my stuff? Are you going to, if I pay you to do something, you're actually going to do it? And so on. And there's no recourse against me other than physical violence against me personally. There's no recourse against me the way there is in a clan-based structure where your clan punishes the other clan. If somebody within the clan doesn't do what they say they'll do and so on. And so you have this new structure where my honor and my reputation is totally tied to me. Whereas before my honor and my reputation extended to my whole clan. And then he says that creates these incentives to worry about your own time. Whereas before, if you worked harder, then you didn't get to keep it. You gave it away to your clan. And now you do. If you were given something, he talks about the fact that the endowment effect, which is this famous thing in psychology, where if you give somebody a mug and you ask them how much they'd be willing to sell it for, they tell you like, you know, no, 13, 14 bucks. I like this mug. If you ask somebody like, how much would you like to pay for that mug? And you don't give it to them first. They'd be like, I don't know, like three bucks. It's fine. People like stuff that's theirs. And the endowment effect is particularly strong for stuff that you've built yourself. So if you build a piece of Ikea furniture, you start to like it more than if somebody else built the same piece of furniture, even if that person is better at building Ikea furniture. He talks about the fact that that's something that you would expect if your identity is really tied to the individual and you get to keep all of the earnings or most of the earnings that you raise and you don't have to share them as broadly with a clan. I think he thinks it's mostly coming from there. And that makes some sense to me, but that's probably not the whole picture. And I think it would be good to flesh it out more. Yeah, that's kind of a story of work becoming more central because of the psychology of the individual being altered by this shift in your family size, that kind of thing. But you kind of have to wonder if there isn't some kind of incentive coming from the top down in terms of the structures there that want more labor to be performed, that kind of thing. You might have thought that the clans would also want individual members to work really hard because they're getting the benefits. There was kind of an incentive there too, but maybe because the proceeds were also getting shared more with the clans in a certain diffuse kind of way. Like I just, it's like harder to achieve that, right? Because I'm, I don't, how, how much can I have an incentive to work when it's going to be given away to some extent? And perhaps the change in structure to keeping more of it for my immediate family that's really genetically related to me had a big influence. I also just wonder though how much of this is complicated and maybe hard to pin down, but related to just the scaling up of economic development and general returns to work becoming larger and larger in terms of the opportunity cost that you were talking about. There might be kind of like a chicken and an egg problem there a little bit. He admits that. He's not very shy about the fact that there is sort of a recursive loop here and, and self-reinforcing cycles. 
if you have kind of a clan-based system, then even if your family is large, you still are working within a framework where most people kind of know each other. Maybe it's like lower than Dunbar's number. And you have all these social incentives. You don't need to pay people as much because everyone knows each other, right? Whereas if you have a large-scale market economy, that's not going to work anymore. That's where money comes in as an incentive. But you do have this interface between the large-scale and the small-scale. You work in the large-scale economy and get paid, and then you have your small-scale family, which is even smaller scale than it used to be right? The way in which you contribute is by bringing money in from that large scale context. So you have these social incentives within the family to work hard, to earn a lot of money to support the family, right? So you have this hybrid of both going on. I agree with that. And it reminds me that there is a sort of a middle ground and we do see these still clan-based but market-oriented families, including larger Jewish families that have been merchants for a long time and the East Asian families that I mentioned earlier, sort of exhibit something that's in between the two, where they do take some pride in their work, but they don't necessarily identify with it quite as strongly as they do with other things. Cool. Let's go to Austin. I had a couple of things. One, I was really curious about the research about how people identify themselves. And as was saying that in other cultures, or I think even said most cultures, if you ask someone who they are, they identify themselves with sort of kinship titles rather than profession. That strikes me as surprising because I've traveled a fair bit. And, you know, even in the Amazon jungle, people will be like, there's kinship, there's place and there's role. I'm such and such from such and such. My family is this and I do that. It seems people's identities are components. And even in like in indigenous societies, there are roles within the group that people have as, you know, a hunter or a shaman or some other status that comes from a task that's performed, although that, that might be composite. They might have multiple roles, right? So I'm curious about that research. I just wanted to introduce as well a little bit of a Marxist angle on it, which is the idea of alienation. So we were talking before about the endowment effect. And to an extent, I feel like the opposite actually happens when you enter a large market economy. So Marx defined alienation. It's a very interesting concept. The simple version of it is a craftsperson makes a shoe and sells a shoe, right? A worker sells an hour of his labor and therefore he is alienated from the labor. He is selling himself, not selling a product. So moving to a large market economy where we're employed by in large institutions actually seems to run contrary to the endowment effect. And so what's driving it? And I feel like the elephant in the room with me, I always think is violence. Maybe I've got a dark mind, but I tend to think that social incentives and stuff often end up being finally enforced by violence. Like, so the prohibition against homosexuality. At first, people would be like, if someone expresses the wrong sexual interest, to be like, hey, don't be gross. Then if you keep doing it, they'll beat the shit out of you. That used to be how, you know, or kill you, right? That was how that social pressure of heteronormativity was enforced. And I think what the stuff that Carl Weiderquist, who comes in this group sometimes, talks about, about how, like, there was this period of violent incorporation into the capitalist system. For one, I don't really like using that word because it's. I think it's a little bit inexact. Act, but you know, the state corporate complex kind of took over the world in phases and violence was a huge part of that. It's a little bit like the experiment with the gorillas and the, the ladder, you know, so there's the experiment is you have a bunch of maybe chimps or whatever. I don't know the primate, but they have primates in a room. There's a ladder at the top of the ladder. There's a banana or something that they want. Every time someone tries to climb the ladder, they spray them all with ice cold water, which they hate. And they then learn not to do it. And then you can bring in a new monkey and it'll try and climb the ladder and all the other monkeys will say, hey, don't do that, right? And then you can actually change out all the monkeys and the taboo on climbing the ladder and getting the fruit will remain, even though none of the monkeys have experienced the ice cold water anymore. 
we might not be experiencing that direct violence because none of us are trying to go, hey, let's go set up an independent society on this river and like disengage, right? Like we've all been herded into mass society. We've all been conditioned by sort of historic violence. So the two questions are, what's the role of violence with all of that framing? And secondly, and, and so firstly, can you talk a bit more about the research of how people identify themselves in other cultures? How solid are the numbers on that? Yeah, so just to tack on to that, I think the story about the monkeys on the ladder is something that never actually happened. It's an interesting story to kind of illustrate a point, but I think it's not real. The first person who told me this story was actually Moshe's advisor, Amir, and he told the whole story and everyone was kind of enraptured. And then he said, yeah, but it actually didn't happen. So that was actually when I first heard about it. In terms of violence, a question we can ask is, is there some process that's happening for some reason and violence is merely the means by which it happens? Or is violence the ultimate cause of what's going on as well? So I'll throw it over to Ares. I'll start with the data. I think Joe's data is actually quite good. I just pulled up the, in the book, he's got the charts. In some cases, he pulls them from individual papers. In some cases, he actually assembles data from every paper he knows of, and he'll do a meta-analysis effectively, a simple meta-analysis in one chart. When it comes to the data on who am I, I am blank, fill in the blank, it's actually fairly striking. They've done this both across the world and then they've done it with folks just within a single country. And Kenya was the country where they found enough variation that they could do this in. So if you do this amongst the Samburu or the Maasai, which are these clans that are still living fairly traditional lifestyles, the proportion of answers that people give that involve personal attributes, abilities, and aspirations. And so that includes things like your job, plus other things. The proportion is about 10 or 11%, I think, for the Maasai. And for the Samburu, it's like 2%. But as soon as you get to Nairobi undergrads and U.S. undergrads, the proportion you give those responses goes up above 50%. And for Nairobi laborers, it's actually somewhere in between. A pretty striking pattern. He repeats this across societies in the world. He doesn't just have this for folks in Kenya, and he finds a similar pattern. When it comes to the endowment effect, they basically had people play standard economics games, but had them play them in a bunch of different countries. The person who led this research was a researcher at Penn named Corinne Pacella, who worked with Joe for a while. You will find that the quality of that research is super high. You're right that it's like really a counterintuitive result, but I think what's going on there is if I'm going to sell my stuff, then I need to value it highly in order to demand the proper wage for my labor. The endowment effect actually gets me to negotiate over my labor properly and to not give away my stuff too easily if it's not stuff that I made. And so it kind of makes sense that if you need to negotiate over whether you will give something away, then you should have an endowment effect. If you don't and somebody just takes your stuff because it just belongs to the whole clan, then there's no need to have an endowment effect. That's where it's coming from. Even though I agree, it's counterintuitive. Like you would think that if somebody is constantly giving away the products of their labor, they wouldn't develop an endowment effect, but it's actually the opposite. Prediction. That brings up the interesting question, which parts of our psychology are biologically hardwired and which parts aren't? Go ahead, Bethany. In terms of the question of violence, so violence is a really extreme incentive. It definitely goes on. And I think probably in the history that Ares was talking about over all those centuries, I would be shocked if violence wasn't one tool that the Catholic Church used to enforce a lot of this stuff that he's talking about. I think Ares and I tend to focus on it less because maybe more of the time it's obvious. I'm not sure. <laughs> maybe not always. So maybe we should focus on it more. But social incentives can be a little more outside of our awareness. So we tend to focus on those in our own work. But one thing that may not be obvious is the connection between violence and people's 
ideologies that are really internalized. So I think we all know that whatever I want to do, if somebody's holding a gun to my head, I might just do something else. But what might be less obvious is that over time, and you mentioned this aspect of time too, Austin, over time, the things that people hold a gun to my head and force me not to do might become things that I don't even want to do. That's maybe more the surprising way in which violence, along with these other incentives, can play a role. I wasn't talking about violence in my intro, but the kinds of incentives related to having a job are pretty high stakes. They're not just reputation or how many friends do I have? It's also like, do I get to eat? Do I get to have a secure home? Do I get to have health insurance? These are really high stakes things. And yet we maybe don't always think about the way that that's going to shape the fact that I think a job is really important for my mental health or that, you know, I, I feel bad about myself if I don't have a job. It's sort of almost surprising to me now that I've done this work for so long that that's not more clear to people. But you do have people writing books saying, no, people really need to work for reasons other than the resources, because we don't necessarily connect the things that I come to want to do with the things that get me resources. Again, not violence, but I think survival is pretty high stakes in these other ways as tied to a job. This basic income discussion, we actually are talking about pretty blatant incentives. Often, Ares and I are talking about much more subtle ways that incentives operate, but we run the gamut. Okay, let's go to Derek. Go ahead, Derek. You're clearly making a distinction between paid work versus other kinds of work. And a lot of these authors you're responding to in the article that we're responding to today doesn't make that distinction. Something that strikes me as notable, it depends like what we think of as paid work, you could include different things in that category or not. Like, do we count making profit or starting a business? Is that a paid incentive? Well, it sort of is. It's, there's an incentive for them to do that, but it's also, you're not getting paid in advance the way workers are. It's very different. They're not actually getting that kind of immediate survival relief that the worker is. They're actually taking liabilities off up front. It seems like in the current society, there, there is a role for work that one just sort of goes out and does and isn't immediately paid to do by someone else. Why do you think there is so much emphasis on work as in getting a job? working for a boss, getting paid that way, as opposed to this other way, which is kind of popular, right? And people will go out and start a business or start an online store or something, right? Why do we have a culture that's interested in formal jobs, wage labor, and not so much in like, okay, go out and work and join the economy or join the market, something like that? Good question. A couple of things I want to respond to there. So one thing is I think that we do value entrepreneurship in our particular, at least in America, but I think that it's a lot less secure. So in your day-to-day -day life, people are probably going to say like, why don't you go get a job as opposed to why don't you start a business for the average person because the failure rate is really, really high. And like I said, we're depending on this for like our absolute survival. So it's just not going to be the solution that people are offering for survival to everybody all the time as a routine kind of thing. Paid paid labor is just a lot safer, easier to get to get a sort of a stable way to survive. So that's my sense for that. Another thing you brought up for me is it's kind of relates to what Eris is talking about. There are sort of different levels of ideologies and incentives. So I was focusing on paid work, because I think that's the thing that might change the most with a basic income. Even though these articles kind of, I think, equivocate a little bit about it, their emphasis is on unemployment, not like, will these people have any opportunity to do something useful? So even though like some of their research that they cite doesn't really specify that it has to be paid work, I think the implication often is that without a paid job, people don't have a way to have something you know useful to contribute, which isn't really true, but that conflation happens a lot. They're not talking about idleness. They're talking about a lack of a job. Yeah. So they don't know if you're sitting at home sewing sweaters for your friends. Right. And in fact, in the article, they even say at first people, people get laid off. They're kind of happy. They have more time to do other productive things like clean out their garage or something. So they're not necessarily being idle. They don't specify why they start to get depressed after five weeks or so. But I think part of it might be like they're starting to get worried about, you know, <laughs> their survival. Maybe they run out of things to do in the short term, too. So, yeah. The other thing, though, is like Ares' broader picture is kind of a deeper point about work that isn't just about paid labor, probably. For example, the opportunity cost of time psychology. 
technology is something that's developed over centuries and isn't just about a paid job. You might not have a paid job and still be thinking like, oh, this is the productive stuff that I could be doing with this time, that kind of thing. If we think about the world changing and maybe changing with basic income and what things would change and how quickly, my guess is that there are smaller adjustments one could make with respect to whether I spend my time on a paid job or not that would still be basically maintaining the same psychology that Eris has talked about developing over time. I might still want to be productive or think of myself as an individual and identify with what I do, but maybe what I do is being an awesome skateboarder or making amazing video games in my spare time and I don't actually get paid for that. And I, but I'm still like working really hard on it or I'm still proud of it. And that's still how I identify. And I still think about time and I still have a clock and, you know, all these kinds of things where, whereas like you could imagine maybe if like the economy really changed drastically over the centuries, then deeper aspects of our psychology might change. And so it depends kind of like what the time scale is and what the change is. And my personal guess is that adjusting to not having paid labor, it'll be different for different people not having a job, but like that could happen probably a lot faster than adjusting to a different perspective on work in a more broad sense, you know, in terms of like doing something that uses my talents and contributes. And then there might be a layer that's genetic, or, you know, there might be some sense in which I should feel like I'm doing something that people send a value. And maybe that could be within my clan. And like, it doesn't, maybe it could be a talent work thing, but something, maybe that's genetic and, and something like that will always be there. So, so there's kind of these different layers and how sticky they are, you know, kind of depends on what the origin is. About the psychology of the opportunity cost of time, it feels a little bit weird to me that that would be something that would evolve, that we wouldn't always have, because there's always 24 hours in a day and you always have to decide if you're going to do one thing or another thing. Is it that we didn't have the psychology of the opportunity cost of time before, or is it that time became standardized and easily translatable into units of money or something like that? Again, I think... You're asking questions that are deeper than he's answered them in the book. So I'm going to have to guess a little bit. It is telling that time becomes important in Europe first. You had the ability to build clocks. You know, you had some clocks long before uh, in the Muslim world um, and in the ancient world. And so you had the ability to build clocks. And Muslim leaders actually would hire European clockmakers to build clocks in their towns as a show of wealth, but they never used them and they were often not actually, they weren't accurate. And there wasn't a sense in which the economy really revolved around them in the way that it did in Europe, where times of meetings were respected and that was an expectation. And I suspect that that's coming from, you kind of need that for the intensive market economy to work well, and perhaps you don't need it quite as much in these other environments. You, you know, you can tell somebody, if you're making a living by being a shopkeeper, then you have appointments um, and you have to keep those appointments. And so I, I think uh, um, there are obviously uh, shopkeepers in other places of the world, but I guess that they're, they're not quite as specialized in like say shoemaking or something like that. And so you might not need it quite as much. And I think he's, he's getting it from that. Uh, but I think I think it's an open question. I, I'm not super confident in that answer. Yeah, I wanted to jump into like, because there's a difference between um, I was thinking there's a difference between opportunity cost of time and having to consciously think about opportunity cost of time. So I'm thinking of Annabelle, our, our daughter, who doesn't think about opportunity cost of time at all, but she's constantly doing things that to her are productive. And she has to like her brain in some way has to manage what she's focused on and what she's doing and, and all of that, but she doesn't have to think about it. So, so why this might be relevant to adults is like, if you have a very structured life. For the record, she's five months old. She's five months, yeah. <laughs> if you're in a society that doesn't have a lot of choice, for example, like everything is kind of like structured for you and you don't really get to choose, you don't have to think about it. Or if you have good intuitions and like those 
those can kind of guide you. Like maybe maybe there are other ways that people are making trade-offs and deciding what to do with their time and how to manage opportunity costs that don't involve thinking actively about it. Um, and so, and I think almost that's that makes sense that that would be the norm for organisms in general. They always have to manage opportunity costs. They don't always have to think about it. So this is just speculation, but I could imagine that like as you have more and more options and more and more individualism where people are actually choosing more as opposed to like roles and, and how, to, how you spend the day kind of being structured for you, it becomes more important to start to think about trade-offs. It's really about thinking about those trade-offs because you have trade-offs, you have these options. This is again, like speculation, but I could imagine that's part of it. The other thing I wonder, and I haven't read this book, I should, so I don't know for sure, but I wonder if there's a difference between thinking about opportunity costs and thinking about work as the primary like thing that you would anchor on for opportunity costs. So I don't know which one he demonstrated more clearly, but like perhaps I would have always thought like, oh, I'm like working with these cows, but I kind of wish I were with my daughter or something like that. Um, but maybe I wouldn't think about work as like the key default. I don't know if it was that or if it's job opportunity costs in general, maybe Ares can, can jump in with it. He talks about the fact that people in many cultures, you spend time with somebody and there, there isn't supposed to be a bound on that. And you just spend time with somebody for as long as it feels good. And then, you know, you move on to the next thing that you're going to do. And if that takes five hours, it takes five hours. That's just how the, you know, you build a good relationship. Whereas in our culture, you know, we're going to meet for an hour and, oh, you know, I've got a two o'clock. And in a lot of cultures that would be viewed as rude. Um, whereas in our culture, um, being late uh, would be viewed as rude. And whereas being late is not necessarily viewed as a big deal often in, in these other cultures. As, as it, if you've traveled, you know, <laughs> right? Like nobody is particularly concerned about being on time in a lot of places. Yeah, so that, that's interesting because that speaks to me to like just different trade-offs. So like there you, you're, you're prioritizing being able to form a relationship really well because like there are a lot of things you can't predict and maybe it needs to take five hours to get to the bottom of like an important interaction or something like that. And so it just seems like they're doing trade-offs differently and, and having a, a precisely working schedule that aligns with all sorts of like strangers and stuff just isn't the priority if you don't have maybe like a strong market economy or other factors kind of working against the value of those relationships. So, so that makes sense to me. That makes sense to me. Yeah, and I think it's true that everybody cares about time at least on like the seasons or the days, right? You're gonna go to bed at night and, and that kind of thing. What's special here is just getting it down to the hour and the minute and keeping close track. And it makes sense to me that that corresponds to facilitating this rapid market activity that needs to happen simultaneously and that kind of stuff that makes sense to me. And probably you're keeping track of time in that five hour interaction because something tells both parties like, oh, it's time to end now. There is some intuition that something has been accomplished, but it's not pre-specified or it's able to be more organic or, or whatever, right? Yeah, you might say the sun is getting low in the sky instead of, oh, it's five o'clock or something like that. Right. The phenomenon he's trying to explain is time thrift. And he says time thrift is unique to us. And that to me feels like it's pretty closely related to this idea that you have work as something that you like really value and that you're giving it up in order to have the interaction. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. Let's go to David. Go ahead, David. I like to talk about the clans and people identifying with the families, the broader families that they came from. And it made me think about how Alex talks about money being a swap of IOUs and that we sort of begin life sort of indebted to our families. People are, are very vulnerable and cannot survive at all without without our families and then sort of the natural world. And I, I wonder if our obedience to our family often is sort of bred into us because you know, the families um, are projecting their children and to some degree are, are their savings. It's their, they provide for the children and, and when the children are young and then the children will provide for them when they're older. And that's sort of a swap of an IOU. That is actually a sort of a form of money. That kind of swap of IOU, this sort of sense of indebtedness to our community 
um, can happen without money. We can go and, and do things for our neighbors and for other people who are in our community. Okay, so he's talking about reciprocity that's maybe not literal money. Either of you guys want to speak to that? Oh, yeah, we think about this all the time, so <laughs> we'll probably both want to jump in. One thing I'll say is that we think about at least the nuclear family and sort of reciprocity in the community kind of differently because we have this strong genetic relationship with our family members. So even if your child never paid you back at all, you would imagine that parents might invest quite a bit in their child's survival because the parents who didn't do that, those genes kind of died off with those kids who didn't survive. So the, the ones who are around are the ones who invest enough in their kids to, to at least have them survive and have grandkids and things like that. That's a different mechanism that's available. Uh, not to say that other reciprocal mechanisms aren't also available to immediate family, they are, but there's like this additional genetic relationship that's really powerful there. And in the community, that genetic relationship is quite weak or it's not really there as strong as a motivator. So the, the dynamics that you need are a little bit different and it's harder to get non-reciprocal cooperation in the community in the sense that, you, you know, you want to get paid back in some way, usually. Um, and it can be over long periods of time in a very mutual kind of way, as David was talking about, where, you know, you, you give to others and then, and then they give back to you. It can be direct, like I help out Alex and then Alex helps out me, or it can be indirect, like I help out Alex, then I'm in good standing with the community and then Ares is going to help out me. And then because of that, he gets helped out. So it can be like very sophisticated. Um, there are different kind of game theory models that, that map this out. But um, that's one of the things I was talking about when I talked about other kinds of motivations for contribution besides paid, paid you know, money. And in fact, money is later to the table, probably than than a lot of these other kinds of motivations, like, like, you know, social reputation and reciprocal cooperation, uh, the way that you were talking about, David, um, and genetic relationship and families too. Um, so those are probably earlier. And now um, with this really, really large scale where it might be really hard to keep track or, or hard to just have those kinds of cooperative norms, you you can also have money as something that's really powerful to incentivize people, but it's it's not the only the only way. So um, I definitely think about those different kinds of motivation. Yeah, I think that's, that's what I mean. I think reciprocity is the right word. To bring it back to the article, it talks about employment. People need the employment but I you know I think that there's a there's a distinction between you know, the basic income employment and, and an employment situation without income typically when we talk about unemployment we're talking about involuntary unemployment and the alternative you know is to look you like Alex often does is this is this is leisure time um, but maybe there's something sort of in between you know um, involuntary unemployment and leisure time where we're doing for um, for where we have these rest inter these reciprocity relationships with our community that is that thing that gives us value and makes us feel connected to our community. I think being able to contribute to your community in a reciprocity relationship where you get standing in your community, like you say, I think that's actually really important to people. I think people deeply value that standing in their community, uh, whether that's a genetic reason or whether or not that's something that's taught because of your relationship with whoever provided for you as a child. I think it's important to us. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think it's always going to be important to us. But I think the important limitation to pay attention to is that these kinds of social incentives don't work when you scale up to millions and billions of people, right? This is kind of what I was getting at earlier, where you have these social incentives in a group where everyone knows each other and you kind of have these reputations and that kind of thing. In a large scale market economy, you don't have that. And that's kind of where money comes into play. Derek said to me once that money is for people you don't know. There's all kinds of incentives involved for people you do know. That said, I think what David might be getting at is if you imagine, okay, what happens if we don't need a lot of people to do paid labor anymore? I mean, I think these kinds of reciprocal relationships and, and sort of other things that people do to contribute based on social incentives might play an even larger role. And I agree that they already play a large role in kind of what's motivating people. Um, there are a couple other things too that aren't about reciprocity. So there's also kind of basically just like showing off. Um, so, so there's demonstrating like your skills or your or your wealth or whatever with like doing all sorts of things or, um, and so that, that kind of thing 
being can be involved in like developing an expertise or a talent or that kind of stuff. So we see that now and you might see even more of that as well. And that's not something where people have to pay you back. It's more like to attract people to be your friend or, or your partner or whatever. Um, so you might see that as well. Yeah. Yeah, I think there's all kinds of things you might be interested in doing if you didn't have to go out and earn money in the larger economy. And that can include stuff related to social incentives, related to reciprocity, related to anything, you know, with your local community, that kind of thing. Or, you know, it could be something selfish or something like that. I think there are a lot of possibilities there. This is all a matter of degree, really. So in terms of the amount of shift that it requires in our psychology, it's not huge. It's not like the kinds of shifts, again, that like Erez was describing over long periods of time. It's, it's we already do are motivated quite a bit by like this showing off stuff by these reciprocal relationships. So it would just be more of our time on that as a, it's not like really a, a fundamental qualitative change. I think that makes it more um, plausible that it could happen relatively quickly. Yeah, that makes sense. I like to say that most of the important work that people do is not paid and you only pay people when you need them to do something different. And I like that you brought up the continuum because David was talking about voluntary work versus involuntary work. I think that's a continuum too. Obviously, if you have a basic income, the higher the basic income is, the less you need the money to be paid. Maybe you're still deciding to work because you want more money, but it might seem more voluntary than it is in a world where if you didn't have that money, you wouldn't survive, that kind of thing. I like that you pointed that out because it's not either or too. Like sometimes, sometimes it kind of is like sometimes paying people sort of undermines the social incentives, but other times they're a little bit of both. So like sometimes you have to be paid less for a job that's also like highly respected. And maybe you have to be paid more for a job that is seen as kind of like nasty or evil. Like, like Alex likes to speculate that maybe investment bankers have to be paid more because they don't get a good reputation <laughs> where school teachers might have to be paid less because they do get a good reputation. So that's also possible that they trade off against each other a little bit in terms of social benefits versus monetary payment. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. Let's go to Neil. I have a different personal viewpoint. What can happen has happened with a lot of people, I understand, in this society. At 16 years old, I was by myself. Basically, my family was not available. And I got sick. I had a struggle to live. So I developed an idea that I had to put all my energy into my work because if I didn't, I'd probably die. That became my motivation. From then on, everything I did was in that vein. I tried to learn about macroeconomics. I tried to understand politics. I tried to the world that way, just because I was forced into it. Then about two and a half years ago, my job disappeared. Okay, so what do I do? I search for something else to do, which I can put all my energies into and be as good as I can be at it, because that's what I do now. I figured out how to control my physical ailment, but that doesn't matter. I'm still back there when it seemed to be in order to live, I had to do it. So I still do that. And I understand other people have a similar situation. I don't have to be motivated at all. I will search for something which I can pour all my energy into because my family is very diffuse. I have them, but very, very diffuse. And I've learned to put all my energies into whatever I do to the full extent I can. So I do. I just want to point out that there aren't every Everybody is motivated the way you say. So it sounds like, Neil, that you're highly self-motivated. A question we can ask is, where does self-motivation come from? The fact I had to. Well, yeah. And then how much of self-motivation is intrinsic? How much of it is the result of necessity? Would you have been motivated in the same way in a basic income world? I think this is a really nice illustration, Neil, and I'm glad you shared of exactly the kind of dynamics that we're talking about, but within a person's life. As I understood it, Neil was saying that like he had a really even strong, even more than most people have the necessity to work hard to survive in our society, which is already pretty high, an even stronger motivation because he had this health condition that needed to be taken care of urgently. What I was hearing is that that created a strong work ethic that was then internalized to the point that even when the initial necessity 
somebody is gone and, you know, it's retirement time or, or he's managed to be okay in terms of health insurance and so on, the drive to be working really hard at something is still there and gets carried over even to unpaid labor. And that's exactly the kind of point that we would make in the short term is that people's incentives shape things that they prefer to do or that they believe. And then that can persist. That doesn't necessarily go away immediately when those incentives go away. An open question is kind of like what we've been talking about is sort of like, how long does it persist? But I think that as we've been saying in our culture, this desire to be working hard on things and productive at things is likely to stick around for at least a while, even if it's not incentivized in quite the same way, at least monetarily. And you can shift it perhaps to other kinds of things. So, so in a way, Neil's story is also suggesting, a, at least for Neil personally, a fair amount of flexibility in whether that has to be from a paid job or not, whether that would scale to others, I don't know. I think Neil's story is also telling in that it's parallels, I think, a lot of people's experience when they have the opposite experience and they're fairly lucky, they're fairly privileged, and yet they are in a society that values hard work and, and they become very hardworking individuals. It's something that doesn't necessarily pay very much, but otherwise gives these social returns. So think about people who might open a cafe or go into journalism or these other fields where the pace, shit, it's just terrible. And the risk is very high and the hours are long, but the job has some cachet. And so they're able to sort of afford to do that thanks to you know a little bit of a nest egg from their folks. And then nonetheless, they still have this ethic that carries through and that's been imbued in them from their families and from the society as a whole, where, where that identity is not coming from the need to make money, but still society values the industriousness. Yeah. Let's go to Chance. The question of like how intrinsically motivated people are to just carry on working and stuff is really interesting. And then, you know, like at the population level, I'm sure it's just on a bell curve like anything else. But even if we assume like the worst case scenario, you often hear people talk about people winning the lottery and then just like falling apart. They don't know how to deal with themselves. They get really depressed and stuff like that. But I think in that case, like it's not a fair comparison because something like a basic income would be universal and it would be suddenly the entire society is trying to figure out how to motivate themselves to work. I think the ingenuity of like every single community in the country would be able to find ways to do that because I think we're just so socially motivated in the first place that uh, even if you are just like the biggest slouch in the world and humans are by default, uh, I think there are still going to be people in their communities that sort of inspire them and drive them to follow them into different domains, whether it's like music, art, architecture, I don't know, you know, cleaning up the streets, stuff like that. I have a few distinctions I want to make, and I like this point. So there are different reasons we would care about people's motivation to do various kinds of things. And I guess I just want to make those clear. So one thing is that we actually need the work done in society. And there, at least according to how Alex thinks about a calibrated basic income, basically what happens is if people don't do it without the money, then you have to pay the money to do it. And that means the overall basic income might be a bit lower because you need sort of to withhold, in a sense, some basic income to kind of motivate people to do that work. That's one reason we might be interested in it. We just kind of affect the level of the basic income. Another reason, though, is is this deeper question of do people need to be doing something that they feel is productive to be happy? And that's something that may come from like these centuries of change that Ares is talking about. Maybe people in other societies and small societies or whatever don't even need that, but maybe we do. And if so, can people find that on their own or, or do they need help finding that in our society if they don't have paid work as the outlet? I just wanted to separate those two different things. It's for people's own happiness or for the work actually getting done. Those are kind of two separate reasons we'd be interested in what people are spontaneously motivated to do or able to do. I think it's an interesting question given that we seem to find that many people do want to do something that feels productive to be happy in our culture, the way that we've all been raised, can people do that on their own? And I think you were speaking to that or, or in their communities kind of like spontaneous 
obviously without, I don't know, like government assistance or something. And I think that to a large extent that they they probably can, but but I'm also open to it being quite challenging or something that, you know, has, has a process of transition. I think retirement is an interesting example. I haven't studied it deeply, but that's like a transition a lot of people go through. It's socially acceptable to stop working, but you don't have that structure of meaning and purpose from a paid job. And from what little I know, some people really thrive in that and some people don't as much. And so you could maybe extrapolate slightly from something like that. One more small point on the lottery. I haven't actually researched these like anecdotes or seen if it's like systematic, but I do think as you pointed out, it's not really like an apt comparison for a number of reasons. Like one is it's a huge amount of money, like it's a huge shock and, and it, you go, your money goes way up. I don't know if it's always paid out in increments either. So like there could be problems with like a huge shock of money that people could then spend and then they don't have it anymore, you know, that kind of thing. And not everybody around you is getting it. So maybe some of the problems are people being after them for the money. There's all sorts of things that are not really analogous to a universal basic income, I think there, as you point out. I think the retirement is a slightly better analogy, even though it's not perfect. Something important that Chance is highlighting is the difference between one person having to adapt and the entire culture having to adapt to a change. That's true for our psychology if the world around us is changing and you know our culture changes. It's also true for the economics, right? If you run a pilot program of a basic income where you give some people some money, you're just seeing how individual people respond. You're not seeing how the macro economy responds. So these are kind of important things to keep in mind when we're doing something that changes the whole economy or potentially changes the whole culture. That's big. Like in these experiments also, they're often looking at things like whether people stop working or not. But of course, first of all, the basic income usually isn't permanent in the experiment. And second, people around them are still needing to work and all these other kinds of things. There's a lot of compounds to, to interpreting what would happen if you scaled it up. The equivocation that you're pointing out from the article that we just hear all over the place where meaning and work are just like the same thing, and in particular, wage labor and meaning, that's just a cultural artifact. And I'm glad you guys are pointing it out. But it's obviously a cultural artifact because there's just no logical connection between meaning and wage labor, you know? Wages didn't even exist, you know, like a thousand years ago or 2000 years ago. I don't know how long you have to go back, but that wasn't a thing really, you know, it was all cultural, social pressure, other in motivators, environmental stuff. Feudalism. Right. So I see like infinitely many ways to motivate people to work outside of the wage labor system and find meaning, I should say. This gets to a quote from the article that I want to share. It may seem cliche, but work is not all about the money, and research proves it. <laughs> People want to work. They want to do meaningful things, said Art Goldsmith, a professor of economics at Washington and Lee University, who has researched the psychological effects of unemployment. They're doing this thing, uh, which you guys brought up before, which is they're assuming that work means paid work, and they're not really distinguishing between a paid job and just work that's meaningful, that does something useful, that kind of thing. And they really don't make a clear distinction in the article. But it is something that comes up a lot in these discussions. I often like to say that people need money, not jobs. And then someone else will come back to me and say, well, a job is more than just a paycheck. People need jobs to feel meaning and purpose in their lives. The need to contribute is what drives people and gives them fulfillment. Maybe people do need jobs, but then you can ask, why do they need jobs? To what extent is it true that they need it? And then to what extent is it something that is an adaptation to incentives? And to what extent can it change? I pulled that quote actually in my intro too. And I think that there are a couple of things. So one, as I pointed out in the intro, what if you don't think jobs are important and then you're not, you know, you're not as motivated to go get one, or if you get one, you're not, you don't seem as motivated. Neither of those things are good for you. So it may be true that people really do in particular want to find meaning from their 
paid job right now, but that might be a function of the way that the economy works right now and what people need from it. And the other thing is that because you have to spend so much of your time usually in our culture or economy at your job, if you also want to find meaning and purpose and ways to contribute for other reasons, a job is a good avenue for it because you have to spend a lot of your time there anyway. So, so if you're not finding any meaning or purpose there, that's a huge chunk of your time completely wasted. So of course, if people might, if even if they have sort of other motivations to contribute in other ways for social reasons or whatever else, they might try to combine the two. And, and as Eris pointed out, like people often do sort of try to find various hybrids of kind of like being paid less, maybe contributing more, or maybe hopefully being paid a lot and contributing and getting like good social kudos or whatever. Um, so, so the fact that we have to spend so much of our time at a job also kind of maybe forces more things to be found in a job than would otherwise need to be found in a paid job um, because you don't necessarily have as much time left in the day. One thing to notice is that it's not just coming from the fact that you have to spend a lot of time at your job, but also at the payoff to, to really caring about your job and doing an amazing job at it. Um, and what you'll find is that in cultures where upward mobility within the workplace um, is limited, people's um, identity is less tied to their job. The classic example of this is Europe, where your chances of making it big in the commercial world are actually fairly small. Uh, wage distributions are much more compressed. And as a consequence, you seem to see that people don't care that much about the job the way that they do here. So, so I think I think uh, I just add that it's not just about time. It, it does seem to be about like what are the opportunities that caring about your job uh, create. Yeah, thanks. Good point. Another example is low level like fast food worker service jobs, that kind of thing. You see the same kind of phenomenon there where you're not going to make it big by being really fast at the drive through window or something like that. Let's go to Doug. This is not contradicting, I don't think, most of what's been said, but I, I don't believe I've heard the word value used in this conversation. And that's kind of the way, in my experience, I think people, most people, have a need to feel valued by others and to feel that whatever it is they're doing is valuable to others, which are related but not identical concepts. What Eris said about the clans, I mean, I know it's true from being in a family, most of us do. Uh, Bethany referred to this as well that we'll do things for our family and we feel valued and we have a strong emotional, personal connection with those people. So that being valued is sufficient to reward whatever it is we're doing. And I'm sure with clans, it was similar that you were part of a clan. I've heard of the uh, Shakers, for example, or even the Amish having that same sense of community of knowing what's expected of them, knowing they're meeting the expectations, having the immediate appreciation of those around us. And in those situations, you don't need money. On the other hand, it's my belief that when, as Alex said, we went to larger societies where we don't have that personal relationship with the people we're doing our work for, that money, of course, it meets our basic requirements. And if, if you're barely having enough to eat, that's all you're going to worry about. But as you have enough to eat, then I think money is a tangible, real evidence that what you're doing is valued and what you're doing is valuable to others. You know, and it's very hard even with charity, even to go to a soup kitchen or something and have people thank you for what you're doing. Or in my case, go and sing for a veteran's home and, and have them thank me. That's all very nice, but I would never do that with the kind of intensity that I do my work because it doesn't have that level of a reward. It's not just the practical benefit. It's also, there's something very tangible and very a very unavoidable statement that the universe is making back to you when you get paid for something that it must have been valuable if it wouldn't have paid you to do it. You know, so that's, that's the biggest thing. I also had a couple of smaller comments. 
Bethany, I think it's interesting the clip you picked about Downton Abbey because actually he says in there, don't you know I'm going to involve you in the estate? The estate is essentially a large business. And so really they're looking down on paid wages, but not on being the operator of a business, which is what they are. So it's not that he's not going to work. It's just the type of work he's going to do is what they're talking about. Also, if you look in general, and I haven't done a huge study of this, but my impression is people that had that kind of wealth in the past, the vast majority did fritter it away. They partied and, and just, they were, there's debauchery oftentimes. <laughs> you know, they didn't go out and do really valuable things. And those were people who had the access to the education, to the culture, to all of the tools that would have enabled them to do valuable things. And yet, and there were clearly examples of people who went out and did that. But if you look across the board, an awful lot of them didn't either. Um, so, oh, and also, Erez, this is a very small side comment, but you're, one of the people you were citing was struggling to, to describe um, why the, well, right, what I learned is the product, Protestant work ethic, why that took off with such gusto. <laughs> and it's my experience that people living today have a very hard time projecting themselves back into the time. And in fact, over most of those centuries that you're talking about, the average people really, really did believe in God fervently. They deeply were deeply religious. They really, really believed it. And so when the church said, do this, and it's a sign that you're one of the chosen ones of God, they did it. <laughs> you know, it wasn't just for esteem. It wasn't just because my, the people around me will esteem me. It's because they really believe, it's also because they really believed that there was a God and that, that God was very real to them, if you see what I mean. Yeah, so a question we can ask is, why did they believe in God? Why was the church so powerful? Why did work become so much more central to religion? Why was it that God wanted you to work? Why was it useful to create this association between work and God? To what extent are these things still true? Was it useful for them to be true? Is it still useful for them to be true today? That kind of thing. The distinction here is what we would call between approximate explanation and ultimate explanation. Approximate explanation is the thing that's going through people's minds. I believe in God. God told me to do this thing. Oh boy, I better do it. God's pretty powerful and you know he has ways of making my life not so great if I don't do what he says I'm supposed to do. The way Henrik would look at this is not at that level, but rather, well, why would that be a compelling thing starting in 1600? but wasn't compelling before that. So you know, where did that belief come from? Why did it uh, take hold? Why did it stick? And Henrik does sort of point out that it had started uh, taking hold by the 1300s. You have movements all over that are starting to associate work with uh, godliness. You have the Cistercians within the Catholic Church who promote those kinds of uh, hardworking ethics. And so it's not just the Protestants that, that have it. And then Protestants adopt it and they help to spread it very strongly. By the way, yes, to answer Alex's question, there are lasting effects still today. So he does document that as well. Just kind of interesting fact. And another interesting thing you brought up, Doug, is the idea that being paid shows that you're being valued for what you contribute. We can ask the question, to what extent is that true? To what extent are people being paid kind of commensurate to the value they contribute? Because if we just imagine a labor market kind of doing its thing and working itself out, employers would only pay people enough to provide an incentive for them to do the work. So that's going to respond to a lot of different factors. And obviously, there's some work in society that people just do for free without being paid that's incredibly valuable. So there's more to it than just um, recognizing the value um, that someone's contributing to society. On the other hand, before when I was talking about this hybrid between the large scale and the small scale. So if you're a family and you're 
bringing home a large amount of money, the value you're contributing to your family is very large. So in that case, the amount of money you bring in is directly mapped on to the value you contribute to your family that you earned by going out into the market. There are two other things I wanted to say, just because that uh, my dad—that's my dad. Doug. <laughs> he had he had a few different interesting points there. Yeah, in terms of the value, I do think you could put it forth as an alternative hypothesis. So I just want to spell this out a little bit. Like we were talking about money as something that the primary point in terms of what's motivating us unconsciously is that it's bringing us resources, and then consciously we we come to value it um, for other reasons. I think uh, the way I would spell out my dad's maybe alternative would be that we evolved maybe even genetically to like respond to being socially valued by other people as sort of a blanket thing. And money has become like a signal that that's happening. That's how I would think about it as, as an alternative, as opposed to maybe just consistent, like you said, with what I was already saying. I think that that is an interesting alternative. I think it might operate to some extent, but I also think that there are issues with it, like what Alex brought up. And some of these are even issues that people bring up and get kind of confused about or concerned about in the general discussion around payment, because people notice that like, oh, wait, teachers, we kind of know, we have an intuition they're contributing a lot, but they don't actually get paid that much. Or like, oh, like volunteers, wait, they're contributing. Or like, oh, what about women, you know, or men who are home with their kids and then they don't get paid. So we kind of know that on the one hand, obviously there's some degree to which if you're doing something totally useless to society, like you might not get paid anything for it. And if you're doing more useful stuff, you get paid. They're certainly not perfectly correlated or one-to-one. -one. And we do recognize that. And and maybe the, the fact that people are upset about it suggests that some of what my dad is talking about is going on where people like sort of see money as a signal of value, but it doesn't totally work like that because it also responds to supply and demand and all sorts of, of labor and all sorts of other factors. You know, you could be a defense attorney for criminals and, and even personally, subjectively in your own mind, you might make a lot of money, but start to feel like that money is not really reflective of like the value that you're doing or, or or vice versa. So yeah, I think it's, it's comes apart in some ways. The last thing I wanted to talk about is the, the frittering time away thing. So I just wanted to emphasize again that there are kind of like two different things we could be discussing in terms of what are people going to do spontaneously. One point is like, how much do we need to pay them to do things versus will they do useful things spontaneously? So we don't necessarily know that. And as we've talked about, that might affect the level of the basic income. But another factor is like, if we don't need people to do things, are they going to be unhappy? I think that's like a separate point. And so in that sense, like frittering away your time, like if we're just worried about people's happiness and we don't actually want them to do anything and maybe even employing them would be like more wasteful of resources, then maybe we don't care if they like sit around and do nothing. So it depends on which question you're asking, I think. Are you asking like, how can we afford to give people a ton of basic income or not? And like, you know, what are they gonna do? Do we need to like force people, do we need to pay people to get things, them to do useful things? That's one question. But if we're asking like, what happens when we don't need people's work? Let's imagine robots can do almost everything. Are they going to be okay? That's a different question. And I guess just the last point though I would make is like, it's interesting also that I often think about that from a different perspective, which is like a lot of people may have frittered away their time, but some people like Darwin came up with really, really useful things. So there's always opportunity cost to taking people's time away, even if the vast majority of them don't seem to be doing something productive. And that always needs to be weighed against maybe something else that you might really need done in society or, or need those people's time for. So a lot of the great science came out of the aristocracy as well, even if it might not have been the, the vast majority of people that can still have an outsized impact on the rest of us. So there's certainly maybe different ways to frame the people having that kind of leisure time. Yeah, great points. Let's go to Richard. I'm currently watching the show Supernatural and for Sam and Jean Winchester to do their job, they have to do a bunch of typically considered bad things like desecrating graves, credit card fraud to fund their livelihood, the 
gambling at pool and things like that. They have to also to actually do their job. They need to use fake IDs to gain access to the information they need, like uh, the coroner's office or examine the crime scene or something. And they can't get any sort of recognition for what they do, no matter how good it is, because people would consider them insane or something like that. And even if they need help for like psychiatrists or something like that, they would be put away. So to kind of generalize this point, you know, it's possible to do things that are good and that benefit society that maybe violate the norms of your culture. You know, I maybe sat around playing video games a lot and people maybe judged me for that. I don't think I don't think anyone really judged me all that much, but we judge people for spending their time in certain ways. And you actually don't know what's going to come out of how people spend their time. You don't know why they're spending their time that way. You don't know, you know, what inspiration is going to strike them, that kind of thing. So this kind of speaks to Bethany's point about opportunity cost. If we have norms in our culture or structures in our economy that force people to spend their time in certain ways, there's something we're giving up. We're giving up what they would otherwise be doing with their time. And sometimes that's worth it. And sometimes maybe it's not. There are probabilities, right? So like sometimes if someone's spending their time murdering, we're pretty sure like we'd rather not have spend. So there's like, I mean, the way you frame it is like maybe a little more open-ended than I would frame it. Like we can definitely like have a sense that some people could be spending their time more, most likely more productively towards what maybe we personally value or want to have happen relative to other people. It also is true though, like you don't know for sure, but that doesn't mean you don't have a guess or an estimate. And I think part of what's in maybe in your head, Alex, is what if you like, like really don't need them to do anything else? Like, should you uselessly employ them? Well, then like any possibility of something useful is better than a definite not useful, right? Like if you know you're making them do something pointless, like the equivalent of digging holes and filling them back in again, you kind of know anything else except like murdering or harmful things would be better than that. But in a lot of cases, we might, you know, might be more unclear. Uh, and we can probably have some guess, like, uh, with video games, maybe if somebody doesn't think things usually good come out of that that are good, they might say like, yeah, okay, one person could like, discover a lot of bugs in the game and like get into coding and do a lot of cool stuff. Like, I don't know, that's kind of vaguely your story, Alex, but like, mo mo maybe maybe it's not very probable. So we might have data that suggests that like, that's not that likely. So I just add those bounds on it. That's all. Yeah, and I think Chance, are you a professional video game player or something? Yeah, I was. I mean, like six years ago. Yeah. Nice. All right, let's go to Derek. Earlier, Bethany, you talked about how if you had a, a calibrated basic income, that uh, people's like a natural propensity to work, how lazy are people? Like those questions would affect kind of our judgment of how much basic income we can afford to give out. Um, there's another way of looking at that though, which is that you know the cultural incentives and the the what the norms that we adopt about work and about life in the economy that uh is it possible that that also can affect the basic income i mean it as an example there there seems to be two basic di different ways of expressing this value of work that we've been talking about in this discussion one of them is like okay people need to feel valued by other people they need to feel like they're going out and contributing and so in order to sort of like meet that need we have to give them jobs or make sure they can be employed. But at the beginning of your talk, you 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 put up a slide that had a very, very different way of valuing work where it says like, uh, be better than the other guy, you know, get up early, go work harder than someone else, right? You hear that a lot. And um, you, you maybe, uh, you, we all don't hear it in the circles we're in, but but there's large parts of culture that are devoted to that kind of messaging, which, which is more competitive, more like, you know, it doesn't matter how many jobs are available, like how hard are you willing to go out and do that? It strikes me that that kind of um, encouraging people to go work totally irrespective from like economically how many jobs are available 
you know, is not necessarily a, a bad thing or an unhealthy thing in a, in a basic income economy, right? If that, is it possible that this kind of cultural value of work could actually have a positive role in a world where you're, it's actually, that's part of what's pushing up the prosperity for everyone else? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think that you're thinking about it the way I would think about it, which is like, these are additional forms of motivation besides payment. So there's monetary payment as a motivation to work, but there's also potentially like social incentives or or things that we've internalized that are just sticking around now, that even though we don't need them anymore. Like we talked about this cultural trend that Ares has been mentioning, like maybe in a, in a culture that didn't have an internalized sense of work as valuable or productivity, or even like a sense of paying attention to time. You'd have, I don't know, you'd have, to, you'd have less, less prosperity and like you could afford a much lower basic income. But to be more precise, sort of to what you're saying, if you have other motivations to work, it does seem like then payment might have to be less. And so the basic income for everybody else could be more, right? And sort of the extreme example of this would be like, people are willing to work for free a lot to show off things about themselves, for example, or because they get other kinds of social rewards. So you could imagine that like, maybe people still want to marry really hardworking people, because that means they'll work harder, like at home and with the kids and stuff like that. And so people go out and work hard at things to just show that they're really hardworking. And then like other people want to date them, things like that. That could be a motivation independent of money. The more you have that kind of thing, as you're talking about, Derek, the more you can afford to pay everybody more with basic income because you, you're not as you, you can you can afford that because the work's happening anyway without uh, withholding some basic income to pay people. So I think we don't really know how that would pan out because right now to some extent most people need paid work. They need to get money, right? So so you don't know for sure how much people would work just for like status or other like showing things off or other kinds of things if they didn't need to devote their time to paid work. Basically, I'm agreeing with your framing there. I think. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. People's behavior is going to be a product of incentives and money is just one of those incentives. People could be naturally intrinsically like genetically lazy and that lowers the amount of basic income we can afford. But also, you know, if the cultural incentives are such that they promote people just kind of not doing anything useful, that might lower the level of basic income we can afford. Vice versa too, if people are intrinsically motivated or if we have lots of cultural norms about people doing awesome things that help society, then maybe that boosts the amount of money the economy can handle being spent into it. I will add that one risk here is that you start to think, oh, well, all we need to do is to make the things that we need prestigious. And so people will provide them. I think we should not assume that as a society, whoever, whatever that is, that we can control that so well. You may find yourself hoping to be able to control that and, and not being able to. It seems to be to some extent a, a process that sort of happens on its own. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And actually, as someone who studies like ineffective altruism, obviously, it's good and, and that people are socially motivated to be altruistic to a fairly large extent. But it also is the case that these dynamics of social incentives can be somewhat inefficient, or like they don't always lead to the things that have the best impact. For various reasons, it can be hard to have that happen. So that can be a role for other kind, you might need government or something else to step in and provide those needs rather than social incentives. It doesn't always work out perfectly, just as a specific example. So for example, things that aren't easily observable, it's hard to get those to be socially enforced or, or things that show off the traits that you want to show off to potential dating partners might not be the same things that are most needed to for a society like maybe it's uh you know like i said skateboarding and people don't really need people to be great at skateboarding but like that's what people get really into because it shows off like physical fitness and work ethic and like a whole bunch of other things and so you have a bunch of people like you know spending ten thousand hours getting great at skateboarding that's what they'll do spontaneously and and i think we circle back around then to, to money too as a great no, none of us, I don't think, are saying that we don't need money in, in this kind of economy that we have to motivate people to do things that need to get done. I like the way Alex puts it, like money is to incentivize people to do something different from what they would do before. To some extent, social incentives might help pick up the slack or like might mean that we need money less. But I think as Eris points out, like 
we're definitely still going to need it. People are not naturally spontaneously going to just do like all the things that we need that it's too complex, let alone whether people would naturally gravitate towards it. So it's really just a matter of degree here, degree in terms of automation and other factors, and then degree in terms of social incentives too. Yeah, we're not going to not live in a large scale economy where we need to pay people to do things. Uh, so the question is, how much do we need to pay them uh, to get the incentives right that, that the economy can do the maximum of what it needs to do to benefit people, that kind of thing. Uh, go ahead, Chance, if you're there. Yeah, I was just turning around to look at my bookshelf because earlier we were talking about, you know, the question of like, how do we explain why the Catholic Church started taking on this role of trying to, to individuate people and, and drive them into the workforce and stuff like that as independent laborers. And maybe clans worked more like unions as compared with independent contractors. And so industrialists, elites, clergy, which usually flow in the same circles, were motivated to undermine the power of clans. And this may not be like, again, a power grab per se, but more like, look at all this wealth that's available. I mean, you, you hear Locke, John Locke, just frothing at the mouth when he's talking about the Americas. He's just like, wow, there's so much land over there. Oh my gosh, all the stuff we could do with that. If only they weren't savages. You know, and Ellen Wood talks about this a lot in her book, Liberty and Property. That's a good resource for that. But then I had another point related to Bethany's dad. He seemed to almost like be bordering dangerously close to uh, endorsing the, the market justice myth. I'm convinced by David Graeber, Stephen Perlstein, and my own experience that, that there's no such thing as market justice. Being paid is no guarantee of positive value being generated in society. And we can see this pretty obviously when we think about drug addiction, you know, prostitution, whatever your stance is on that. Selling shark or dolphin meat, lots of things that obviously produce value, but aren't the kind of value that necessarily we want in society. And then furthermore, there's no macro economic mechanism to empower labor, to bargain for the value of their own labor, um, as far as I can tell. But basic income would kind of, and if this is, I'm understanding the way Alex is coming at this sometimes, it seems like this would be a, a macro, basic income would provide a macroeconomic mechanism to sort of actually calibrate labor demand or labor supply accurately. And then, yeah, in our economy, laborers simply have to take whatever the holders of capital offer them. And automation is a real problem here because the value of human labor to do necessary tasks in society is set to decrease over time and perhaps dramatically. The point is that the clan was operating a bit like a union. I think that's roughly the right intuition, uh, though I will quibble with the fact that you name industrialists. They're, they're, we're predating the industrial revolution by a thousand years. And so we cannot talk about them quite yet. But basically what you had was fairly powerful units that were good at keeping resources within them. The church wanted those resources and it finally found a way to get at it. The way was to make it so that it was evil to marry your cousin, which made it much harder to keep resources within the clan. And not just cousin, but cousin, second cousin, all the way through sixth cousin for a good chunk of the, the Middle Ages was you weren't allowed, which meant that you had to move out of your town effectively to marry. You had to go to, to neighboring towns to find somebody who wasn't related to you six, six removed. So that was what the church was doing. Yeah, and in terms of, I think you called it like the justice theory of value or something like that. Market theory of justice. Market theory of justice. It's interesting to me that people bring this up so much though, and they either feel that it should be that way or that it is that way, or, or maybe if not that it is, that it should be somehow. And so it makes me think that part of what's going on might be that that's like one of the many signals, right? So like, as you pointed out, if someone's buying dolphin meat, well, if you're giving somebody happiness, I guess, like that person who really wants that dolphin meat, it's just that in aggregate, we might feel that the pros don't outweigh the cons. And there are many, many different factors that affect 
the cost of your labor besides social value. Like maybe there are a thousand children whose lives you could save, but they only have a dollar each. And so you get a thousand dollars for saving a thousand children's lives. But maybe there's like one gazillionaire for whatever reason, he has a ton of money and he wants to pay you, uh, you know, $5,000 to sharpen his pencil so they can be sharp, you know, because he doesn't, it doesn't mean anything to him. so much money. So like, you know, that's just one more example of how like these things. So like you are providing happiness to the pencil sharpener and you are providing happiness to those kids, but the dollar to dollar per utility isn't lining up. I think we all kind of understand that, but, but my, my point is that maybe because it's one signal in the mix that might still be important to people personally, which I also think was my dad's point in terms of people's motivation, the fact that the money could be a signal of providing value might still be right. And that might explain partly why people get so frustrated that these things are not lining up as opposed to just kind of accepting it because they're seeing it as a signal possibly. And then it's not a signal that's a very good signal. And so then people get frustrated with that. Yeah, good stuff. Let's go to Eddie. We should be careful to keep in mind that the price of labor, it's an allocation mechanism. It's not an enabling mechanism. A lot of these, including the article, but you know, there, there's a lot of arguments that go out about, oh, you can't have basic income because if you had a basic income, then people would not be motivated to work. I want to say that that is a problem that is already solved. It's, it's not actually a problem because say people are very lazy and they, you know, they, they really don't want to work. What that does is just shift the entire supply curve, you know, in, in one direction, but it doesn't mean that the economy cannot get the labor that it need, needs. It just means that the economy will deal with that shortage of labor by bringing the price up until it has all of the labor that it needs. So it's, it's really, it's not a problem. And, um, you know, in a, in a calibrated basic income world where you're using the basic income to make sure that the economy is actually fully activated, we're actually using the productive resources that we have, which is not the case right now. In that world, if people were more lazy or less lazy due to cultural factors or, or whatever, that would only just shift your economy between being one that produces more material goods and services or being one that produces less material goods and services, but allows people to have more leisure time, which people also value and should value and is, is also you know valuable thing in itself. I think those are good points. I just wanted to point out one thing that I'm sure Alex is also thinking, which is if labor becomes more expensive across the entire economy, that will create inflation, which could counteract to some extent the quantity of the basic income. So if it happens in certain sectors and it's balanced out by other sectors being, you know, maybe going in the opposite direction, that's not going to be an issue. But if you have wages needed to go up across the whole economy, you'll have inflation. Yeah. If the supply of labor is too low, you can decrease the basic income to increase the supply of labor. And then that also brings up the price of labor as well, because uh, consumers are getting less of their money through the basic income and more of their money through wages. Let's go to Austin. First of all, I wanted to go back to this idea of you know, we were talking about clocks and time. There's a line in this song that goes, move to the analog timepiece skywide. So it's about that people responded to natural rhythms, to like actual tides and stuff like that. In a very technologically simple or fundamental society, I don't like the word primitive, but a society without a lot of technology, you don't control the environment, so you have to respond to it, right? So, you know, you pick fruit when the fruit's ripe and you hunt when the animals are near the waterhole and you respond to all of these external factors. So who cares if it's nine o'clock? It doesn't matter. Actually, there was a study I saw about it was called the pace of life. And it said one of the things was being Protestant or Catholic. And the other thing was living in northern latitudes or closer to the equator because you have the external time, the shorter days and longer days and the, the, these changes with the seasons are greater. So it sort of affects the way people respond to time. But I think what I was getting to with that is there's a reason for laziness. Laziness makes sense in certain contexts. Like if there's no fruit to pick, there's no point climbing the tree. You save your energy in, a, in, a, in an environment where calories are 
scarce or where you need to have your energy when you need it and you need to sort of store it up and not use it when you don't. There's like reasons that laziness is actually the effective strategy in those contexts as well, I think. But anyhow, I wanted to also go about with jobs. People talking about jobs. Like the reason I don't have a job is because all the jobs I've had, I felt like the opportunity cost was too high. I could get a job at a cafe somewhere and it's like, not only do I not think that they need me at that cafe, I don't think they need to have that cafe in this town. And like, there's just all the stuff I can do outside of the labor market actually to me has a greater payoff than because I'm able to survive outside the labor market, right? One of the things about a UBI is it would actually help align those labor market incentives with value, I think, to a greater extent. Because we have this situation that Alex talked about a lot where, you know, the financial sector is overblown and, and um, unstable. And a lot of the economic incentives are about doing stuff that people in or close to the financial sector want rather than doing stuff that people in general want. So I still think you've got to worry about inequality after you provide everyone with a basic income, you still got to worry about inequality because otherwise some people's needs will be massively overrepresented and the system won't distribute work in a very, I don't think you can make it perfectly just, but I think you can make it more just. Last thing I wanted to say was the idea of disinterest. One of the things that I think is really interesting is the professionalization of knowledge and thought. So now to an extent, there's going to be a, a population of people who don't take, say, for example, Alex very seriously as an economist because he doesn't have a job at a university or a think tank or because he's not validated by employment somewhere. Or a degree. Or a degree. I would say there's more to the degree than the job, right? Like there's more, like I, I'm less hostile to degrees conferring legitimacy than I am to employment conferring legitimacy, right? Because it's actually a reversal of the historic norm. There used to be this value of disinterest. Like I am a disinterested party. Therefore, my opinion on the situation is more valid. Whereas now, and you actually see this in like political discussions, it's the opposite. If you say, well, my opinion on, I don't know, something that doesn't affect me. If I start talking about racism, people will say, well, you're not affected. You know, you're not a victim of racism. So your opinion doesn't matter. And it's like, I get that obviously we have to listen to the people who are involved and who are experiencing it. But the idea that an external objective opinion, a disinterested opinion is invalid is actually quite a novel norm right? Like it used to be the case that Cicero, I think it was, or someone criticized historians who did it for money, because you're going to produce the history that is going to get you paid, not the history that's necessarily true. And, you know, like philosophy used to be considered disinterested and having a job doing it made actually your output suspect. And we've kind of got this reversal of that now, where having a job and being paid to produce and having institutional validation actually elevates thought and knowledge. You know, I'm not saying one approach is necessarily right and one approach is necessarily wrong, but it's a really interesting way that the sort of labor market has colonized a lot of stuff. I think if we had a more disinterested, if we had a, a more of a sense of play. So the, the example that I've heard used is these religious scholars in Israel who get like a you know subsistence amount of money and all they do all day is study religious texts, right? And they actually report having a very high life quality and life satisfaction. And they've sort of held in high status, even though they're essentially living on welfare doing play, right? But that's kind of the model of intellectual engagement I can imagine you'd see more in a basic income world. And I think that would be really fruitful. Yeah, in some contexts, if you're getting paid, that means you're an expert. And then in other contexts, if you're getting paid, that means you're a sellout or something like that. So that's something interesting to pay attention to, too. We are getting towards the end. And I do have a final question I want to ask you guys, especially during coronavirus times, the policy talk has been about supporting workers and protecting wages and jobs. The word stimulus keeps coming up as if we somehow need to get the economy going or something like that. And the question is, why didn't we just say, 
we don't want people to work right now, or at least we want to minimize that. We want them to stay home and hand them the money so they can still access the economic output that we can still produce when our economy is in our kind of semi-hibernating state. The generalization of that question is, when are we collectively getting cultural incentives wrong and what can we do about it? Yeah, that's a good question. So, I mean, I think the local incentives for the politicians are to not look like they're trying to support free riding or something like that. And I think behind that is a belief that this work is generally going to all be needed in the future. And so this is very much like a temporary thing. And these people really, really want to do the work, which is part of the cultural incentives we're talking about, but they just can't right now. That's why we're still calling them workers and things like that. So I think that was an important optic for people. I think with coronavirus, there's kind of a short-term versus a long-term distinction. So, so you might believe that like really everybody's work was incredibly productive and useful, at least we would like it before coronavirus. And right now we just need to pay people to stay home, which I have heard those terms used. Like we need to pay people to stay home right now. And then we want them to come back to those jobs later. So I actually think that's a little bit separable from the bigger picture question of was all of that work useful and like worth the cost before the coronavirus, which is really the question for what we should think about in terms of the general cultural incentives and how much we want to be emphasizing work. There's sort of an assumption that the economy works such that useless work isn't happening, or at least I think that's a largely shared assumption, not in this group, but in general. And I think changing that assumption creates a different framework that could actually be co socially costly for to keep some people employed is, is a perspective that many people don't have. And so instead, the idea is that if you're working, you're doing something good for people. And so the social incentives are behind that. To even recognize that that might be wrong requires actually something about thinking about the economy, requires a certain view of the economy and whether that work is actually costly or not costly. So the last thing I'll say about that is I like your point about sort of small scale versus large scale. And in the smaller scale, it's kind of easier to understand whether people are contributing something useful or not. We don't really run into this problem as much. Like if someone in our family is doing something like taking out the trash or whatever, we kind of have a big sense. Or if they're taking out the trash and it was too early to take out the trash, we kind of know if it was useless or useful or whatever. It's like easier to solve this. Or problem. if they're bringing home a paycheck. Yeah, but I guess what I was trying to say is it's like easier to gauge the value of contributions, usually in a smaller scale, but in a very large scale, it's more difficult to gauge the value of contributions. And I think that's one of the problems that we're running into and one of the things that needs to be solved. I found it to be completely bizarre. When the key thing that you need is for people to stay home, the obvious thing that you do is you pay them to stay home. And so you just implement a universal basic income. Yeah, there you go. So I was quite puzzled by that. And I think Bethany's response probably is the right one, is that there's this like overarching perspective on work as being essential that sort of bled over into this situation when the natural thing to have done would, would have been to implement the UBI and that, you know, other places to do um, when they had the means to do it. I guess more broadly, we can ask about, like as Bethany was alluding to, outside of coronavirus times, we still expect people to work and when wages aren't enough for consumers to get everything, we do all these things that interfere or distort the labor market away from what it would do otherwise. Yeah. So I think the thing to note there is that at least the thing that I always think of when I think about why do we emphasize work is probably because we don't really want to do transfers of wealth in this country. I've always assumed that it's related to that, but I might be wrong. I mean, or maybe that's just one factor and there's dozens of others. Obviously there's this, the historical factors related to Protestantism that are also important and the ascendancy of Protestantism in the United States and its dominance culturally. But I think that there's also this issue of sort of an elite keeping the money within its pockets. Okay, so maybe that creates a window for some of the stuff that I like to talk about where you don't necessarily need to take money away from the rich in order to make all this work. So that's it. This is a great discussion, you guys. Thank you, Bethany and Erez, for coming on as featured guests. This was our last one for 2020. We're going to be coming back in 2021 with a new format. We're going to be cutting it down to an hour. Derek is going to be co-hosting with me, and we're going to try to get more featured guests and have more discussions like this one more often. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Alex. This is really fun. Thanks, everyone, for your questions and thoughts. Thanks for having me.